Hey, good morning. I'm Emmalyn, and our scripture reading today is from James uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, and this is found on page 1013 in your pew Bible. And if you don't have one at home, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift. Page 1013. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers that mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And these cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and your self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter." You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Emmeline, for reading God's word for us. And again, we're glad that you have joined us this morning. Whether you're here in the room in person or you're joining us online, we're really glad uh, that you're a part of this morning with us as we uh, gather together uh, to celebrate the good news of the gospel and remind one another of these truths that that shape our lives and the story that gives meaning uh, to our experience. And as we continue in our service this morning, uh, looking at this passage that Emmeline read for us, I'd like to pause and pray uh, for God's word to speak uh, afresh and anew to us this morning. So Jesus, we do ask this in faith, knowing that you, um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, guided those who wrote these words of scripture using their own unique personalities and styles and situations to record your timeless word to us. We also recognize, though, that these words weren't first written to us, but they are written for us. And so we pray now as we um, learn what your spirit has to teach us, that we would be attentive to how to apply these to our moment and our lives, both individually and as a, a congregation together. We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Spirit who inspired these words for us. Amen. Well, in 2008, a Kansas City native and resident uh, became a nationally known figure, uh, but not in a good way. Scott Tucker was featured in the second episode of the Netflix documentary series, Dirty Money. And Scott's story is one of someone who was consumed by consumption, as someone who was blinded by greed. In 2001, Scott had founded an online business, AMG Services, that made payday loans with illegally high interest rates. And actually, he made deals with Native American tribes to avoid laws restricting obscene interest on payday loans. And his uh, corrupt lending practices made him a lot of money. From June 2008 to June 2013 alone, AMG Services generated $3.5 billion of revenue. 
making 4.5 million uh, loans to 4.5 million Americans who were economically vulnerable, living from paycheck to paycheck. And, and his sort of ill-gotten gains funded his luxurious and lavish lifestyle, including an opulent mansion, exotic vacations, and million-dollar race cars. And in 2017, he was convicted of illegal payday loans and racketeering and is currently serving a 16-year sentence in prison. And, and we know that stories like Scott's are, are not new stories, and they're not, uh, unfortunately, they're not even rare stories. And we could multiply examples, right, from, from Enron to Bertie Madoff uh, to human traffickers who profit from the most vulnerable women and children and men to make money for themselves. And when the Wall Street Journal interviewed Alex Gibney, the filmmaker and creator of the Dirty Money series, uh, Gibney said this, he said, over time, as we saw with Enron, and as we saw with many of the examples in the series, a message of cheating emerges at a company, and then the cheating is almost impossible to stop. Now, while we may not have gone off the uh, ethical rails to the extent that Scott Tucker uh, had, the reality is that we are all vulnerable. We are all vulnerable to the deceptive power of greed. And the peril with greed is not ultimately about how much material wealth we have. Because rich is always relative, right? None of us here this morning is rich because rich is just someone who has more money than you, right? Rich is always relative. None of us are rich. Rich is someone who has more than I do. So the danger is not how much material wealth you have. That's not ultimately the danger. The danger is how much of what we have has us. The danger is how much of what we have has us. And so today as we continue in our Real Faith series looking at this letter that, that Pastor James wrote to his congregation in the first century, we're going to see that real faith knows that if we don't trust God with our wealth, it will ruin us. Real faith knows that if we don't trust God with our wealth, it will ruin us. And I hope that if you only remember one thing from this morning, if you only write down one thing from this morning, I hope it's that, that real faith knows if we don't trust God with our wealth, it will ruin us. And so if you are here in the room, I'd encourage you to grab one of the pew Bibles or if you brought a Bible with you to turn to James chapter five. If you're joining online or you have a phone here, just if you just Google James plus the number five, you will find a, a bunch of websites and just click on any one of them that will pull up this passage for you. I'd love for you to follow along in James chapter five. And as we look at this passage of scripture, we're gonna see three truths that James lays out for us here. And, and the first is that our wealth can ruin us. The second is our wealth can ruin others. And then finally, that our wealth can lie to us. Now notice in all of those points that the language is can. It can do those things. It doesn't have to do those things. And wealth is not inherently bad. In fact, wealth can be one of the greatest tools for human flourishing. In that way, wealth is a bit like uh, nuclear power, nuclear technology. We, we can use it to treat cancer. We can use it to propel uh, probes into space that are exploring the universe. But we can also use it to utterly annihilate entire cities. And so because of that reality, Real faith takes seriously the dangers that come with the power of wealth. So the first thing we see here is that our wealth can ruin us. 
Our wealth has the power to ruin us. And this is what James shows us in verses one through three in James chapter five. Now, one of the biggest questions that we as Bible readers, as we're reading these letters, we always have to write who, or ask the question and answer the question, who is this being written to? And one of the most important questions we have to answer about this passage in particular is who is James speaking to in verses one through five in this section? Is he talking primarily to Christians inside the church. Again, he's a, a pastor of this, of this Jewish um, church in Jerusalem that probably has been scattered now throughout uh, the Roman Empire because of persecution. So is he primarily talking to rich Christians inside the church who are doing this? Or is he speaking to non-Christian oppressors outside of the church who are sort of abusing those vulnerable Christians inside the church? And, and to be clear, the uh, in, interpreters are not in uniform agreement on those questions. But I think it seems most likely that James is actually, in verses 1 through 5, speaking to those outside the church who are oppressing vulnerable Christians, again, who likely had to flee their homes after persecution broke out in Jerusalem. And there are two reasons why I, I think that's the, the best way to read verses 1 through 5. Uh, first reason is this. Unlike in so many other places in James, which James offers a lot of correction uh, to his congregation in this letter, but usually he'll say, this is the problem, and then here's what to do about it. Here's what you need to repent and stop doing. Here's what you need to start doing. But here in verses one through five, there is no call to change or repentance or action. It's not like you read these verses and then it's like, in light of that, do this. Because verses one through five, they're just a pronouncement of judgment, and there is no, so watch out, you should be generous, or pay back what you've stolen. It's just a word of judgment. So that's the first reason I think it's unlikely that he's speaking to those inside the church. Second, and I think this is even more compelling, is that there's such a stark shift in tone in verse 7 and even an explicit identification of an audience, where it's almost like James has written verses 1 through 5, and then he says, in light of what I've just said, and then you get to verse 7, be patient therefore, and then he explicitly says, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. So there's this, this shift in verse 7 where he seems to be now talking directly to his congregation and his word to them is be patient, brothers and sisters, as you await the coming of the Lord. Okay, so with that in mind, let's read verses 1 through 3 again. Again, this is page 1013 in your pew Bible. Google James 5 and you'll find it. This is the English Standard Version. Come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And it's going to be clear as James goes on, a treasure that's going to be a judgment against you. And this is about as vivid as a picture you can paint, right? I mean, James is not mincing words here about the seriousness of what these people have in store. And again, James wants his readers to see the power that wealth has to ruin us. And these, again, these rich oppressors had allowed greed to cause their riches to rot their souls. It's like a cancer eating them from the inside out. Now, the people that James is likely addressing here in this first century, sort of zero-sum agrarian economy, are those who were greedily acquiring land and then exploiting the vulnerable to work that land and make more profit and money for themselves. 
Again, the first century is a different economic context. This is, uh, there's not a robust middle class. You kind of have people who are, have own land and have wealth as a result of that, and then those who, who don't. And so this, the, the power differential is, is very stark here and how that works out economically. But that doesn't mean that these words don't have something of warning for us today. It doesn't mean that the peril of wealth is any less dangerous for us now. And, and notice the progression here. First James says the riches themselves, this gold, the silver, this clothing, it, it, it's rotted and corroded. And then they themselves are rotted and corroded, corroded, eaten by fire, James puts it. I mean, again, James is, is not, he's got it turned up to 11 here. Eaten by fire. And in many ways, like so much of James, he's drawing on the rich Old Testament tradition as he writes this letter to his Jewish readers. And he's drawing on an Old Testament principle, I think, here that can be stated this way, that you become what you worship. You become what you worship. Whenever we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, which is what Tim Keller says is the definition of an idol, when we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, we become like that idol. Listen to what the psalm writer says in Psalm 115. And even notice the kind of language of gold and silver here. Their idols are gold and silver, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. He's talking about the idols here. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And then here's the turn in verse 8. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. We become what we worship. This can happen to us. Our wealth can ruin us, so don't hoard it. Our wealth can ruin us, so don't hoard it. The picture, again, that James paints in these verses is striking. Uh, The wealthy have so much stuff, it just sits around unused by anyone, and it's just there kind of slowly rotting and falling apart. And one of the ways our wealth can ruin us is by convincing us that what we want is what we need. Let me say that again. One of the ways that our wealth can ruin us is by convincing us that what we want is what we need. Let me just give two two practical prime examples of this uh, in in our cultural moment, right? One is the expanding size of closets. And I know a lot of you live in these houses in Waldo and Brookside and Prairie Village that were built in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and you know, unless you've gone in there and done a major renovation, the houses, they have tiny closets, don't they? I mean, absolutely tiny closets. At least it seems that way to us. And, and here's the thing. When you look at these homes that were built in Waldo, Prairie Village in this time frame, it's not like these were like affordable housing units where we're just going to put the tiniest closets. The t- I mean, these were nice houses for people who had a decent amount of money. And yet, somehow 70, 80 years ago, people just had less stuff. Uh, so here's another one. The explosion of self-storage units. I mean, this, the self-storage industry is a $38 billion, $38 billion industry. And I, I look around Kansas City, I see them being built all the time. And that just speaks to me. It's like, it just means as a culture, we have to have a troubled relationship with our stuff. Because it's not like necessarily the houses are getting smaller. <laughs> The houses are getting bigger, and yet still, we don't have room for all of our stuff. One of the, the dangers of wealth is it convinces us that what we want is what we need. 
And, and that's why we've been focusing on the, the spiritual discipline of simplicity in, in uh, the formed life. And so, again, we, we passed out these journals at the beginning of our James series. We're, we're wrapping up soon, but if you, if you haven't had one of these, you can go online to theformed.life, and you can even sign up to get emails about this. But we've been focusing, how do we practice the discipline of simplicity to help us avoid some of the perils of wealth? And again, simplicity is not about getting rid of everything. This is where simplicity is actually different than uh, sort of minimalism. Simplicity is not about getting rid of everything you have. It's not about never buying anything nice or having nice things. Rather, simplicity just asks these questions. Simplicity asks, do I actually need this or can I give it away? Or can I not buy it in the first place? The best place to practice the discipline of simplicity is actually on the front end before you acquire the thing in the first place. So remember, one of the ways that wealth can ruin us is convincing us that we want what we want is what we need. But our wealth doesn't just have the capacity to ruin us. Our wealth also has the ability to ruin others too. And this is why James's words in James uh, chapter uh, 5 here in verse 4 are so harsh because it has the capacity to ruin others. Because it isn't, again, that the rich that James is addressing here simply worked hard, saved carefully, and built up wealth honestly. That's not what he's talking about here. No, they have amassed wealth at the cost of the vulnerable. The vulnerable who are in James's congregation. He's looking out at those people and saying, you have amassed the wealth that you have by exploiting and abusing the people in my church. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Your echoes of Genesis chapter 4 with the blood of Abel crying out, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Again, it's the same language from Exodus when God's people are crying out, enslaved by Pharaoh. These wealthy landowners are withholding wages from vulnerable workers who have no recourse against them. They have no power. They can't take them to court. They can't get this back. They are at the mercy of these landowners to do the right thing, to treat them with fairness and justice, and they are not doing it. And again, this same, this same kind of thing still happens today. I mean, in some ways, this is, could not be any more up-to-date uh, for example, just this week in, in the news here in Kansas City, I, I saw that Jose Pepper's restaurant just reached a, a $1.57 million settlement with staff over claims that, that servers were required to work before clocking in and were asked to report overtime hours as normal hours under another employee's name, required servers to work off the clock solely for tips, and that those tips were unfairly pooled and distributed between tipped and non-tipped employees. This thing, this is like, that's this week in Kansas City. Not going into the whole history of all kinds of things that have happened in our city and in our country. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I'm, I'm one of those people who's been taken advantage by an employer who did not fairly, fairly pay me or didn't pay me at all. And I know, looking at I can tell you stories of people in this congregation who have done lots and lots of work for clients. Especially if you're a freelancer, you do gig kind of work, or you're an entrepreneur, you are especially vulnerable to this kind of thing doing work for a client and then not getting paid or not getting paid for all of it. I could tell you numerous stories of those sitting in this room who've done lots of work 
for someone who never paid them. Manual labor kind of work as well as technical knowledge kind of work. And, and I just want to say to you, if, if that's you in this moment, like if you've been in that situation, James is writing these words as words of comfort and encouragement to you. That God will deal with those who have unjustly withheld what they owe you. And his words to you, brothers and sisters, are be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And when he comes, you will be vindicated. Hear those words of James as words of encouragement and promise that the injustice done against you will not stand, not forever. And again, for all of us, we have to be aware that not only can our wealth ruin us, but it can ruin others. So we need to be just with it. Again, in the Bible, justice is, is a positive concept. It's more about, it's, it's, rather, sometimes I think we think about justice as I'm going to avoid corruption, right? If I'm just, I'm just not going to do wrong things. But really, justice is more of a positive, holistic concept. It's about, not just about avoiding the bad, but actively pursuing the good. Uh, I was recently reading Proverbs 31, and I was struck afresh by these words of wisdom that are to be the, the, the way of life, the hallmark of apprentices of Jesus. This is Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9. This is a good and wise life. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. The question is, does our, our wealth speak for those who can't speak for themselves? Does, does my wealth lift anyone out of poverty, or does it only lift me up? And maybe more importantly, if you're sitting here like, Bill, what would that even look like? I, I think I'd, I'd want to do that, but what would that even look like? Well, let me just give you three uh, examples of organizations that are doing this kind of work. And what I want you to notice about all three of these, they're just going to be brief examples, but they're not about short-term crisis relief but rather about long-term investment. And right, there's a, there's a course, a place where we, we should give dollars in moments of disaster and crisis in, in charity and relief kinds of ways. Absolutely, that's a hallmark of followers of Jesus. And we ought always be there in those kind of moments, whether that's a, a, a large-scale crisis or just an individual who's struggling. Uh, but these groups that I'm gonna highlight for you, they, they do something different. They are about investment, not charity. They're about building wealth over generations and using wealth for the good of others. Uh, the first one is uh, called Collab Capital, and, and they work to address the challenges that black entrepreneurs and investors often face in getting funding for their businesses. And again, this is a group that brings in investors to invest with them. It isn't charity, it is investment that has returns. Uh, the same with uh, an organization called Eventide Funds. Uh, I love their, their tagline is investing that makes the world rejoice. And their goal is to invest in companies that are not just, again, avoiding corruption, but actively making the world a better place in medicine and technology. They're looking to say, how can we fund efforts and companies and entrepreneurs that are doing positive good in the world? 
And again, if you invest with them, it's, it's an investment. It's not just giving charity, but an investment with, ideally, with a return. Uh, another example is, is a group called Hope International. Uh, they work in the developing world with people in extreme poverty, again, to provide access to capital for small businesses, for savings groups, for microfinance, to, again, to give people access to capital to start businesses. These aren't, this isn't charity. These are loans that are paid back with interest that allow access to people to begin to build wealth, not just for them, but for their children and their children's children to break a cycle of poverty. Friends, in a world of global capitalism, one of the most powerful ways we can use our wealth is to invest it well. Do we know where our investments, what, what companies they own, what, what they're doing? One of the best ways in the economic system in which we find ourselves living is to invest our wealth, whether it's a little or a lot, but to invest it well. Okay, so, so far we've seen that our, our wealth can ruin us, our wealth can ruin others, and finally in verses five and six, I want to say our, our wealth can lie to us. Our wealth can lie to us. And again, this is an incredibly intense pa- passage, and these are some of the most graphic words that James uses in this already intense passage. To those outside this church who are oppressing his congregation, taking advantage of the vulnerable, he writes like the Old Testament prophets announcing woe on the nations who have assaulted Israel. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's a sobering line, right? Again, James is kind of in this Old Testament prophetic kind of oracle mode. He says, you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. I mean, James is saying to these people, your, your wealth has become like extra pounds of fat that will make you a tastier meal down the road. Your wealth has convinced you that you are storing up safety, storing up security, storing up happiness, storing up joy, but you are only storing up judgment, a savings account of liabilities, not assets. And wealth can have this unique power of deception. And James has talked a lot about it. You know, it just can convince you that, oh, I deserve this. I deserve it. That you can do whatever you want with it. That, that it will make you happy. That you don't really need God's help. These are all lies that wealth can so easily tell us. And, and you know it's a lie because it's never done. It's never done. It's never satisfied. What you want with your money isn't what you always wanted before. Like I think about this, right? When I was in middle school, I spent so much money. Now, I didn't have very much money, but I spent almost all of it on Star Wars action figures and toys that I don't have. I mean, I, actually, I still do have them, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I was going to say I don't even have anymore. I don't, that I don't use anymore. Maybe my kids will enjoy them someday, right? But like what we even want and what we spend money on, if you look throughout the course of your life, that's always changing. Like what you desperately want and need and think you can't live without this year, maybe will be different next year. This decade will be different next week. Our wealth so easily lies to us and it's never satisfied because maybe it's one hobby now that needs all of your time and attention and energy and money. And, and next season of life, it's a totally different one. And all that stuff is just languishing somewhere in a garage or storage unit. Our want of stuff is never done. It's not trustworthy. And again, this is true whether you have relatively little or relatively much. Because I, I know people, right, because it's not just about how much money you have. 
a number on a, on a bank account. Because I know people who live paycheck to paycheck, who have no savings, who are, and, and yet are constantly racking up credit card debt to buy stuff that they can't afford, but that they think will make them happy. And, and on the other hand, though, I also know people who have nice homes, nice cars, uh, who have plenty of money in the bank in between paychecks, who live very simply, who just don't buy lots of lots of stuff. And, and maybe in part, that's why they have that margin in between paychecks. So it's not about the amount of wealth that is ultimately central. It's the reality of wealth, whether a little or a lot, that it has the power to lie to us. And since that is true, we have to be generous with it. Our wealth can be, lie to us, so we'll be generous with it. Again, this is Paul's instruction in his letter uh, to, to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. In many ways, what Paul writes here in 1 Timothy is sort of the, the positive exhortation to those with wealth uh, that pairs with James's warning here. So, so listen to what Paul writes to Timothy, his apprentice pastor, kind of his, his pastoral resident, if you will, about how to shepherd the rich in his congregation. I love these words of Paul. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, don't be prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of life, which is truly life. One of the best ways to remember what wealth is really for is to leverage it for love of God and love of neighbor. In doing this, our wealth becomes a way of storing up treasure for life, which is truly life, rather than judgment that will stand against us when Jesus returns, which is what James is assuring his congregation is going to happen to those who have abused and oppressed and taken advantage of them. But inevitably, the question in this kind of conversation on generosity always comes, but pastor, how much? Can you just tell me how much? How much should I give? Uh, what percentage? Um, sh- how much should I give to the local church versus to other organizations? And, and should I base that on, on before taxes or after taxes or what I had before the capital gains taxes were applied or, or after? And, okay, that's way more than we have time for this morning. But a really important questions to wrestle through. But what I want to leave us with in, in that regard is just C.S. Lewis's words from Mere Christianity, which I always find challenging and instructive. Lewis writes this. He says, I do not believe one can settle on how much we ought to give in sort of an absolute sense, a universal rule. He says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditure excludes them. But here's the thing. You know what? When I talk to people, who are truly living that kind of generous life. When you talk to people who are truly living that life, they're some of the most joy-filled, content, and happy people you will ever meet. 
It is those giving generously, even when it pinches and hampers them, to use Lewis's language, who find life and joy because they know that real faith, when it trusts Jesus with everything, especially wealth, finds life that is truly life. Brothers and sisters, real faith knows that it can trust Jesus with its wealth because Jesus knows what it is to be a victim of greed. The greed of Judas who sold him to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver, the greed of the evil one who lusted after his power and glory. On the cross, Jesus died and his flesh was corroded and destroyed by our greed and the greed of the whole world. And yet on the third day, he rose in victory to show us the way to be free of the power of greed as we follow him in a life of generous, self-sacrificing love of neighbor that yields joy without end. That is the Savior that calls us to a life of flourishing with him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we and starting with myself, that you would afresh open up our place, eyes to the places in our lives where, where wealth has deceived us. Again, whether we have a little of it or a lot. And in those places, would you give us the courage to believe the promise that your design is better? Because I know what so often keeps me from obeying you in this is not actually a desire to do what you want, but a fear that if I do, I won't be happy, or worse, that my family won't have what they need. So give us the faith, the real faith, to trust you in the places where we're afraid that we might escape fear and find joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.